0: It was a very difficult time, but then, you know, it's when things are falling apart is when you really get a chance to make things happen. So, as I told somebody when I took over that position, I'm tenure, I got my citizenship, and I don't give a shit.
1: I'm Maya Deary. How do you feel when somebody or something with much more power than you have knocks you down, tells you, or maybe even shows you, you might not be good enough? What do you do about it? Get back up? Struggle to not believe the naysayer? Ignore the knockdown? Do you try to learn something so maybe you can come back with more capacity and strength? When I recorded this interview with Dr. Antonio Puente, who among other things is an avid surfer and celebrated neuropsychologist, we couldn't know how much this pandemic would knock us all down. But I suspect that even if we had known about the coming challenges, the interview wouldn't have been much different. Surfing and all ocean play are, after all, practices of scanning, of seeking, of developing relationship with something powerful over which you have absolutely no control. And, at least in my case, for the first umpteen years, of getting knocked down over and over again. Now this kind of play is also a way to connect with yourself, with the more than human world, with other humans, and with creativity whether you love waves or weaving, hiking or haiku writing, some kind of passionate, disciplined engagement in an endeavor that allows your body to come into nuanced collaboration with the wider world is, I believe, one of the most rewarding ways to inhabit your time. In Dr. Puente's case, it seems to have helped him overcome some long odds and powerful forces that might have kept him from becoming who he is now. In addition to being an inspiring surfer story, this tale of an immigrant boy overcoming long odds is, I think, also a great American story. This episode is dedicated with love and so much aloha to the memory of Tico Lozano. Welcome to Waves to Wisdom.
0: Um, Antonio Puente, uh, or Tony as some people call me. I started surfing, I believe, in 1964, in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. So it's been quite some time.: So you were just a little boy: Yep, on yeah. a wooden, woody surfboard. it looked like more like a battleship than a surfboard. As you paddled <laughs> out, the waves actually broke for you This is not, you know, as you catch a wave, as you paddle out. as you paddle the, out. The waves would part for you <laughs> You had a little Moses effect on them. And will you
1: just talk a little bit about where we're sitting right now?
0: Sure. This is a club called the Surf Club towards the north end of Wrightsville Beach. And it's a beautiful small pavilion overlooking the ocean. And we're very fortunate to be away from the wind, but in front of the view.
1: The sun has just come up above the water's edge and it is a gorgeous morning here. Okay, I would love to start by talking a little bit about your childhood.
0: Well, yes, Uh, I was born and raised in Cuba. I was privileged. One side of my family was involved with rum. The other side of the family was involved with legal affairs. My maternal grandfather was head of the um, legal department of Bacardi. So we were well-to-do. Had uh, my own nanny and and a chauffeur at that. And then after Castro took over, we came to the United States on November 6, 1960 with $300 a change of clothes and no knowledge of what we were getting into. We assumed like a good revolution in Latin America would only last a little while we would return. Well, that was 1960.
1: (laughs) It was a while ago. (laughs) It
0: was a while ago.
1: Do you have any memories of Cuba from your childhood?
0: Yes, I do. I not only have memories, but they were reinforced on a regular occasion by the family, especially my mom and dad, talking about Cuba. Uh, and and then subsequently, I returned to Cuba first in almost 40 years later in 1999 and, and have returned pretty regularly since then. So I, I left as a refugee and I, I come back as a decorated psychologist. No
1: about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and did you and your family speak English when you came here with $300?
0: No, my mom did. She had gone to boarding school, uh, high school in Philadelphia, but my, my dad and my brother and I did know. In fact, I remember mom explained to me that, I know this is maybe odd for me to tell you, son, but they don't speak Spanish here. <laughs> what am I going to do? And she goes, ah, oh, you'll figure it out. Oh, my and, goodness. How um, old were you then? I was almost nine years old.
1: Almost nine.
0: nine. Nine years old in North Miami Beach. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment with two families. My wow. brother and I were very fortunate. We, we had the kitchen floor to sleep on So we wow. were the only ones that had a private room. <laughs> wow.
1: Um, okay. Incredible. And uh, so you went right into an English-speaking school system then, I imagine. Right. So then you were surfing the whole time then in Miami?
0: No, no. In Miami, I didn't get a chance to, okay. to go to the beach very often. I think we were just trying to figure out how to get food and, and, and learn the language. We subsequently moved to San Antonio, Texas when I really first came in in contact with what I, I guess we call discrimination and I realized at that point even as a child uh, that despite the fact that we didn't have food and and at one point we didn't have housing as well that there was very active discrimination and there was a pecking order at least in the United States and Texas at that time and there was the white people and then there were the some black people and there were the brown people so considering that we were really out for the count and we were being discriminated against, it seemed to my mom and dad that if if we were gonna suffer in those circumstances, we might as well be among other people that were similarly like-minded. So we returned to Florida, where my family settled in Jacksonville, Florida.
1: And there are, as opposed to San Antonio and even Miami, there are consistent waves in Jacksonville.
0: And that's where I first came in contact with uh, waves because one of my father's friends, uh, Cesar Garcia, had a son that, who knows exactly how, he had been exposed to surfing and uh, he was always willing to give me a ride to the beach. And from 1964, 65 on, I went to the beach with him as often as he would and continued surfing ever since then.
1: And you ultimately decided that you were interested in psychology and went to graduate school.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah, as far as psychology, I was really curious about how people came to understand and engage and successfully adapted to the world, and it, it seemed to me that psychology was as good a discipline as as, uh, as any that provided a vehicle to address those issues. It came to me in, in my first psychology course at a small community college in Jacksonville, Florida. It actually, was a, a segregated grammar school had just been given over to this fledging concept, which was. Junior college in those days, so I, I went there. Then subsequently, University of Florida, where I was able to continue surfing, and subsequently to to pursue the career at the University of Georgia, where there were no waves. You know, onto psychology as a formal career path. What what a fascinating motivation! The curiosity about how
1: people adapt to the world. So um, we've surfed together a few times at this point in Raceville Beach where it's, it's a home break for both of us, including a really spectacular surf morning a couple of days ago.
0: It was uh, the, the vibe of Wrightsville Beach, aloha spirit all over the place with wonderful little waves. It really was.
1: So many people. It was very crowded. It was it was the kind of day when I normally would not have gone where we went, uh, but because I was with you, I did, and I was so grateful because I was surrounded by people, but they were the best people. It was yeah. just wonderful.
0: We were very fortunate.
1: It was like being in a, in a welcoming friend's home. It was really fantastic. Okay, so you went to graduate school, and you told me a story previously that I hope you'll tell again, about wanting to put together what were then, speaking of segregation, two really separate areas of psychological inquiry.
0: At that point I was curious about this issue of adaptability, understanding the world, and and moving forward, And, and it seemed to me that studying abnormal behavior was really successful because some people would make it and others wouldn't, but the mechanism that would uh, mediate the entire process. To me, it seemed to be the brain. And uh, uh, unfortunately, at, at the University of Georgia then, and even now, the individuals that study abnormal behavior were the clinical psychologists. They were in the first floor. The people who study the brain uh, were primarily studying animals in normal behavior, like learning, and they were in the sixth floor. I wanted to bridge the gap between those two. I did so uh, by getting a master's, what was it? January 6, 1978, and then I defended my dissertation on January 13, 1978. So I did it pretty much in parallel fashion rather than interactive, which is what I was hoping to achieve.
1: One of the things that I've noticed since learning how to surf is it looks to me as though, certainly from my own experience and from observing others, that many surfers, not all, but many, tend to have a capacity to see past artificial barriers that we erect. And, and I spent 17 years in an academic world, and there is really nobody like academics to construct some really impenetrable barriers, especially between disciplines. I, I wonder if your habit of surfing and all of this fluidity and these distant horizons might have helped you you know, understand, well, these two things are not actually separate.
0: Well let's go back to your comment you said regarding academics, having been in academia formally since I was the age of 18 and continuing as professor of psychology here at UNC Wilmington. I can't tell you how surprised I am even after all these years. The unbelievable politics associated with academia, people fight so aggressively over so little to accomplish even less than that is beyond surprising you kind of wonder there are certain places that life should be pure and the pursuit of knowledge and the dissemination of that information seems to me that it would be an obvious place where peacefulness, truth and collaboration and collegiality should be present to try and move the big agenda of our our world forward I hate to tell you that has been a, still a surprise to me that that has, has not occurred. But that has been the place where I chose to pursue a career, largely because of the uh, opportunities that, that academia does have. Uh, for example, access to young people, access to thinking what you want, when you want, as long as you produce, and maybe you're in a position to do that. But uh, academia has been the foundation for where I was able to pursue that. Now, at the same time, it seemed like a fulcrum needed to be established so I could uh, handle that because whereas I was very interested in the pursuit of knowledge and, and dissemination of what I knew, as well as uh, having access to young people and, and, and fresh ideas, etc., I also felt that that aggressive attitude that was seemed to be so contraindicated uh, in the pursuit of, of, of and discovery of knowledge, that uh, I needed something that, that would help balance that. And for me, that was living at the beach. So I could somehow or the other manage that that difficulty, which was present ever since I came to the U.S. in many ways and has continued even to this day. Oh, a place where I could disappear, at least emotionally and mentally, and that would help ground and establish a place to to provide a balance that could only be achieved if a fulcrum had been set up. On one side, the motivation for the pursuit of information, knowledge, discovery. On the other side, a sense of well-being and, as you sometimes say, wisdom that really is hard to find anywhere else except when you come in regular contact with lots of water.
1: Yeah, it, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, but there's a, a loose association of researchers and an idea called Blue Mind. People are studying something that we many of us know intuitively, that being around the water feels good, uh, and you go from the water back to whatever world you live in on dry land, uh, rejuvenated, relaxed, and potentially more creative and effective than you would have been if you had not.
0: Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with Blue Mind. Actually, we use it at the American Psycho- Association, Psychological Association, uh, at least in one, one uh, branch of it. But yeah, to me, it's you know, somehow or the other. I, I don't know the science of it, but I, I, I know the life of it. So it's, it's been part of who I am.
1: All right. Well, that uh, observation is really interesting to me because you're in a position to understand how the brain is actually responding to the stimulus you know, much better than I am. You wrote a paper in which you were talking about the traditional mind-body split that we have in Western culture and the ways that psychologists have approached behavior and brain over the, the history of the profession. And you came up with a phrase reverse epiphenomenalism, which is so interesting to me. My understanding of that is that it's not just our brain that dictates behavior, but that what we do in the world and the ways we think in turn create the ways that our
0: brains act. Is that is that part of what was in that paper? Pretty much. Uh, it was my way of trying to get some understanding of how is it that we end up producing... Uh, who we are, and it really is an, uh, an idea that emerges from the work of my intellectual mentor, Roger Sperry, who discovered the two sides of the brain. And his his concept was pretty straightforward, and that is that the neural structures of the brain give rise to a mind or consciousness in a sort of epiphenomena, a sort of upward causation, and and then that consciousness, in turn, dictates how the neural structures underneath uh, end up functioning, and that sort of uh, downward causation. So it's a it's, it's a reverse epiphenomena, because we think of epiphenomena as an outgrowth of something, but this is sort of the outgrowth of the outgrowth. So it's a unified system of, of function.
1: Interesting. Okay, so if someone, for example, like you, had a multi-decade habit of, of going to the water as a way to... You know, make sense of, uh, recover from, and regenerate for life. Especially the the sort of intensely intellectual world that you live in to have this embodied practice. It could potentially change the way your brain was structured and functioned. Is that?
0: I don't know. That, that certainly could be. I, I don't. I don't get. I don't know the science. I, I. don't do the science of surfing at all. But I certainly do the, the, the lifestyle of surfing. And I think it's been endemic and core to who I am and, and maybe has allowed me to, to, you know, maybe to engage life in a more successful fashion than I would have done otherwise. I always wonder, for example, if I'd been given the opportunity, which I was, and, and seized it to go to New York University where I would work, you know, tons of hours a week and be exposed to asphalt rather than water what would happen and I I wonder whether I would have ended up in the same place unlikely and I wonder if I would have been as successful unlikely and maybe as comfortable with life uh, most unlikely.
1: Really interesting. So, let me just, for anybody who doesn't understand the significance of what you said, you were essentially offered what in your professional world would have been an extremely high-status job um, at one of the premier tier one research institutions in the country. And you decided that it was more important to be someplace where you could access this lifestyle.
0: Well, I thought the lifestyle was really important to, to both raise a family, have a personal life, but have a balance with my uh, professional life. And and I. whereas I think being at a top-tier university may have been very useful in, 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 a, in my career and probably in anybody's career at the very beginning, um, uh, there comes a time in a career where the institution stops carrying a person and the person starts carrying the institution. Mm-hmm. And that lifestyle becomes really critical I never been one of the opinion that you should ignore your personal life as you pursue your professional one in fact I thought that having both successful would be very good I often told my kids it's not that hard to be a successful academic but uh, it might be not as hard to have a personal life that's also gratifying but it's insanely difficult to do both and when you do both, you end up having great results.
1: Mm. Uh, present company a testimony to that fact. Fantastic. Okay, so you. Uh, my understanding is that you recently spoke at a commencement ceremony.
0: Oh yes, yeah. That was that was really surrealistic. I spoke uh, at the uh, the Department of Psychology commencement ceremony in, in Athens, Georgia. It was really pretty gratifying. It was a great audience, several hundred students graduating, but it was, was really unique. It was actually two things that were unique. The, the chairman of the department was the mentor of my, my oldest son, who graduated from University of Georgia, as I did, but also when I was a student there in 1974-75. Specifically, I recall being told that I did not know enough English to be able to succeed as a psychologist. And I was encouraged to, to leave the, the university and, and, and possibly psychology. Uh, so I, I took a, I took a few few weeks off. I went surfing, <laughs> to be honest. I worked at a psychiatric hospital uh, the eleven to seven shift. I, I couldn't tell the difference between the residents and me at that particular <laughs> juncture of my life. But uh, did that? Surfed in the morning and. And came to a conclusion that they were wrong and returned and off to the races I went. Oh my goodness, that gives me chills that the waves t- told you that or yeah. that you were able to hear that uh, from yourself in those waves. Yeah, they were, they were important to try and reestablish that balance I had lost by spending nine months not being very successful. So it was really great to return. I'd been there as a student, an unsuccessful one, and I was there as a parent because two of my kids ended up going there. But this time I came back as as a celebrator, distinguished alumni. When they invited me, I said, are you sure? You know, forty some years ago, you guys were asking me to leave the program. Now you're asking me to speak at your commencement. <laughs> the response was, "That was then. This is now." So. It's,
1: it's a different world in some ways. Okay, wow, quite something. And one of your one of your many roles, in addition to being a professor at UNCW and a uh, an avid surfer, is your head of a branch of the American
0: Psychological Association. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I had been involved with organized psychology for many years in one role or another, and I particularly was interested in making sure the psychology had a a seat at the table rather than a line on the menu, and the goal was basically to get this way of thinking more active in our society, and uh, I decided to become or run for the position of president, which after a couple of tries, I was an unusual opportunity to have become that as the 125th president in 2017. Uh, that was a particularly tough period for our society and also for our country. I inherited an association that was uh, essentially broke and uh, fragmented, largely because of the assault uh, on, on such things as science and, and the importance of person and diversity in, in our in our society largely because of the current administration and uh it was a very difficult time but then you know it's when things are falling apart is when you really get a chance to make things happen so as i told somebody uh when i took over that position uh i'm tenure i got my citizenship and uh i don't give a shit so let's make <laughs> things happen you know, I left my country, uh, I left everything, so no, no reason to be cautious during times of crisis. So we were able to turn the ship around, and in the process we realized that we did not have infrastructure to do advocacy, which is so important in our society. Somebody has to carry the, the flag of discovery, the, the flag of truth and of diversity and, and, and decency. We didn't seem to have that in any way shape or form, so we started a new association that is part of, of APA, and I took that over when it started earlier this year. So I, I finished my tenure as president and took over in this particular capacity at the present time.
1: Excellent. And, and so now you, having engineered the organization so that it can support advocacy, you're actively engaged in, in doing that now That's too. right.
0: We now have an infrastructure. We have 20 attorneys director of advocacy and 60% of the basic budget, the uh, membership fees, excuse me, that comes into the association gets directed to this activity so we now have an economic revenue source and uh, we're developing the agenda as we move forward, you know, with a basic foundation that if, if it has to do with human behavior and has to do with science then we're there to provide direction and as much as possible advocacy.
1: Okay, well to bring this sort of to a level that people can understand what you, what you mean when you say advocacy, what would be an issue that right now in 2019 your branch of the organization is actively engaged in trying to address?
0: Well, uh, I'll give you one very specific one and one that applies to me as well. And for a long period of time, I, uh, I did not have appropriate papers. I was an undocumented uh, uh, individual, in fact, uh, in 1978 I entered the country. Uh, from Grenada, West Indies, not realizing how it was undocumented, and had been undocumented for 10 years. So I'm one of those undocumented people we talk about, and also, as, I, as you know, the president of the association that is so, so involved in our society today. So, uh, so we, we held hearings in Congress, and, uh, and now we're trying to develop bipartisan support to To make sure that we don't separate children from their parents, and that we come up with a reasonable approach to to border security. I am not against border security, but I am against dehumanizing people and causing trauma. Uh, in some ways, what we're doing to uh, these children and these families will cost the, the United States a, a lot of money, a lot of pain, and more importantly a loss of uh, direction of who we are as a country.
1: You're here, yes. It's really quite a story for the ages, and for this age in particular. You're a living example of, of how somebody can come in with no skills relevant to the workforce, being a child who had no English, and wind up really changing our country for the better right. on a very high level.
0: Well, uh, whereas I appreciate on the surface the idea of, you know, let's let's populate certain skill sets that we need, like for example, computer programmers or coders and so forth. The idea that we are no longer going to value family as a way to populate the immigration system shows a a lack of empathy, understanding of how human nature works. And also, also, and this is really important, we were founded on an open attitude about people.
1: Yeah, one aspect of your work that I think is particularly interesting is your legal work. Would you talk about that a little bit?
0: Sure. When I started this work on uh, cultural neuropsychology, the idea was to understand the role of culture and, uh, and how is it plays in, in brain mediation of, of discovery and adapting. And in the process, it became more pragmatic in terms of trying to figure out what tests could be used that were measuring the construct in question, for example, intelligence, rather than some variable that was uh, extraneous, such as time. Uh, So the the idea became develop tests that were true to the concept rather than measured a variety of things and provided all kinds of problems and errors in our understanding of the the client or or the patient. And uh, in doing so, I started getting... Uh, More focus on developing appropriate tests for Spanish speakers, which is a large population in the United States and a huge population in the rest of the world, because there are very few neuropsychologists in general, almost none that speak Spanish. About fifty of us in the United States, and uh, and unbeknownst to me, some of this became interesting to the legal field and specifically individuals involving death penalty, because it turns out that an increasingly large percentage of uh, individuals in death row are Spanish speakers and for what it's worth it turns out that uh, Hispanics are sentenced to die four times more frequently than Caucasians and uh, for African Americans is three times so uh, a disproportionately large number of them were being sentenced to die and the question was are we simply not understanding these individuals so I, I started being called upon uh, first interestingly in a local county and then subsequently throughout the US in fact, I have a case coming up next week in New York, and uh, the goal is to discover what's going on with this uh, individual and make uh, a, a reason estimate of whether their brain is, is affected. So along those lines, I've been working on on uh, doing neuropsychological assessments of Spanish speakers that have been sentenced to die. I don't know for sure. I, I think I've done a, between 100 and 150 of these cases throughout the US. Uh, and it, it continues being a significant part of my work. I see more patients that are clinical, if you will, but the bulk of my time, it seems to be in these death penalty cases, they they take hours and hours and hours. Uh, I just finished a case that uh, I've, I uh, worked on for approximately 10 years, uh, Several hun- several hundred hours. I've interviewed the family and tested them went to their hometown in Mexico and when you when you get to that level of analysis, normally you know the brain but you know this person probably even better than they know themselves and the goal is to provide information to the court so they make a good decision make sure that we're not uh, sending someone just because of their culture uh, or, uh, or other misinterpretations, the goal is to provide good data, as best as scientific information as you can at that particular instance. Uh, So the issues are just entirely legal rather than anything
1: else. Fascinating. Yeah, seems so important because many of the people who are making the decisions in, in court, the judges and the attorneys who are structuring the argument, may not have the cultural competency to Put the context to it. It,
0: it could well be. I'll give you an example. In uh, Harris County, which is basically the, the county seat of Houston, Texas, census to derive more people in that county alone per year than the entire world combined. Wow. Uh, there can't be that many. Unbelievable. So there's something awry, and my job is to bring. An understanding to a very complicated situation. Justice obviously goes for both ways for the person that's been victimized as well as the person that is being sentenced. But either way the goal is to erode error and increase accuracy. Wow, such important work. So just,
1: just to put this in, in a nice little package, so you have a very busy academic post at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. You have graduate students, undergraduates, departmental responsibilities. You're a director of a branch of the, of the American Psychological Association. You have this active practice as a legal expert, providing this kind of crucial context, these capital, mostly capital cases. You overcame a uh, language barrier and economic hardships and to achieve all this professional success. W- what do you think has been your greatest success?
0: Well, uh, for me, the greatest success in general has been raised, raising three very normal children, all who serve. <laughs> so, <laughs> all, these are human beings that contribute to society. But my, maybe one of my greatest successes, uh, at least this question was asked to me when I was president, what's been your greatest success as president of APA? And I'm sure there's something more tangible than I could provide that what I'm going to do now. But probably one of the greatest things that came to my mind immediately was that I served uh, in three different continents in one week as president of the U.S. (laughs) So I served in Europe, then I served here in the States, and then I served in South America. It seemed to me that uh, if I consider that to be a crowning achievement of my year as the 125th president of the United States... Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, I should maybe the U.S., but of uh, the American Society. Like, be
1: wonderful <laughs> if you were?
0: <laughs> oh, that was a 40-year <laughs> slip, but if I could be president of, of the society and that was my greatest accomplishment, one would argue that maybe I have my head in the right place. I would absolutely argue that, yes.
1: Yeah, so so it's, it's a very busy job, has you traveling all over the place, and some of those places you are able to get in the water.
0: If I have the opportunity, if it's close to the water, I'll make an effort to, to make that happen which is always uh, extremely gratifying and, and to my host, extremely surprising as well. <laughs> you are a
1: distinguished character. And so to don a wetsuit or some board shorts and, uh, and take a big board out in the water and, and you are a shredder, you know, to really catch and ride gracefully some, some w- big waves, I'm sure it gives them pause.
0: Well, I'm not sure I'm a shredder. I'm probably closer to a coug. But either way, <laughs> it, it's a pause for those people that are not familiar with this lifestyle.
1: Do your children surf?
0: Yes, all my children surf, and my my wife, uh, in her day, used to boogie board as well. So, so in fact, all uh, all of them grew up, literally a few feet from where we're having this discussion. We bought an old house here, Wrightsville Beach. Didn't have enough money to establish a heating and air conditioning system, but we did have a small tent that we would pitch up, or at least my wife would, every day, and the kids would just spend their days on the beach. So they all grew up right here. And as soon as they could put a little life vest on them and and then a boogie board and then after that a board and they
1: all still do it. So this practice has really been central to your personal life for your entire
0: adulthood. Uh, Yeah, yeah, and, and for my kids. And for your children. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, we try to take a family vacation every year and we're going to do so this year, all of us to where i i took my wife on uh on a honeymoon and I, I told her we were going to some outer island in the bahamas she goes what's there i said i think they're waves and uh we're going back to celebrate uh, the beginning of uh, of our married life which started with riding waves in the middle of nowhere in the outer bahamas so wonderful and how many years have you been married now I think a hundred years okay good <laughs> we were married in 1977 okay a long time beautiful and
1: your, your children are grown now
0: yeah. yeah my daughter's a psychologist in Melbourne Florida and she, she and the kids lived the beach life my other son my oldest son Nikki is a neuropsychologist at George Washington University and he still serves as well and then uh, Lucas my youngest son as married and has a kid. Lives in uh, in California and uh, and serves Northern California, from Santa Cruz to right below the Golden Gate Bridge, which is Fort Point, which I was worried about because it's between him and the open ocean is uh, and lots of current is not much. Right.
1: Yeah. That is a it's a dynamic ocean environment there, but talk about a selection of waves. Well, wow. he gets the better waves of all of us. Yeah. So one of the papers that you wrote, which I was particularly fascinated by, it's addressed cultural bias in testing children for cognitive impairment and particular relationship to time. Would you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, we've actually uh, done research on that topic for a number of years. My area is primarily neuropsychology and specifically the relationship between culture and brain function and the idea of how culture plays a role in understanding how people uh, discover it, understand it and adapt to it and the difficulties that some people have with it and the success others are fortunate uh, to have been able to conquer it so we, we've dedicated many years of study on that and, and in many countries whether it's South Africa, Russia, uh, Spain, and Cuba among others uh, we discovered that sometimes we misunderstand what the construct is that we're trying to measure to understand what is it that uh, the, the person is all about for example the case of intelligence and that is how, how is it that we determine whether a child is smart or not so I'll, instead of telling you a story about our research i'll tell you a story about myself so when i was first given these tests i don't recall much about them because i didn't know english so my mom just said they're going to give you some tests. Do your best and be courteous. And I'm almost sure that the diagnosis to this day may have been moron, but friendly, and get light or what? They, oh my goodness! I have I had no idea what they were asking me. <laughs> what are the colors of the U.S. flag? <laughs> Whatever you're asking, I'll just smile. So, and in that case, they misunderstood intelligence with with language. And in the case of people who speak Spanish, time is something that we enjoy. In the United States, time is something you conquer. So the faster you do something, the smarter you are. In our country, the more you savor it, the smarter you are. So when you have those constructs mixed, you may have a kid that enjoys the experience. As my own child, Nikki, when he took those exams as a small kid, he was enjoying it, and he asked all kinds of questions, so he got a low score as well. I said, Nikki, no, this is not what you're supposed to do. So it had nothing to do with intelligence. It had to do with your approach to, to problem solving. And, uh, and sometimes we confuse the two. I sometimes say that I've spent my time trying to figure out what well, people from Latin America score about 15 points or one standard deviation lower than their counterparts in the United States. And why is it that... After all these years, are trying to figure out why they're not as smart as people from the U.S here I am in 67, still trying to figure out why they're not that smart, but they all have retired back to Central America.
1: <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> who
1: is the smart one? <laughs> Who's the smart one? Yes. Oh my gosh, that is that is remarkable. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time in this, uh, in a Spanish-speaking country, Costa Rica, this beautiful little, little village that has a lot of expats, many of whom are fluent in Spanish, and, and my Costa Rican friends have watched me struggle to try to learn Spanish for five years now and get almost nowhere. And I'm pretty sure their diagnosis would also be moron, but friendly. Lars, <laughs> <laughs> you try. Yes. We're,
0: we're t- discussing, it, I think, more important than, than the contract of intelligence or even language is the contract of, of culture, because one thing is to speak the language and another one to, is to appreciate the culture, and that's a lot more complicated. Going back to Costa Rica, things just don't happen fast. Never. And if you go in with the attitude, I want this solved today, by going to a store or a government agency, it just doesn't happen. And people are going to view you as an irritant, as difficult, as arrogant, when in reality, you're not. All you're trying to do is solve a problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you have to put it in the context of that. And that's what the brain does. And for that matter, that's what surfing does. It puts a context in place. Because otherwise you get so busy and so full of trying to, I gotta get another publication, I gotta earn another dollar, I gotta fix another patient. And then when you come here, you realize, well, it's not that simple. It's a bit more complicated.
1: Yeah, the late, in my estimation, great Irish philosopher and poet John O'Donohue said that a lot of Westerners, and Americans in particular, tend to be victims of their time instead of inhabitants of it. Uh, And and I have found for myself, and maybe you're saying also for you, that surfing really does help me inhabit my time. It makes me able to live in this moment instead of according to the to-do list.
0: Establish your true north, because otherwise you get caught up in in the system. We talked yesterday how religion very often provided a framework for many of us, and then industrials, industrialization and, and, and consumerism has done that in recent past. Uh, but you know, both have left us with uh, big vacuums. In some ways, surfing provides a, a way to resolve that vacuum, which is so critical. You know, we're on in this for the long haul. Where this is a marathon, not a sprint, and I think surfing allows you to to think of drinking that water during that marathon, otherwise you get dehydrated and and you lose. Yeah, beautiful analogy. So
1: the underpinnings and framework of the Waves to Wisdom project is that surfers' regular involvement in the natural world, in this medium, this dynamic embodied activity, and in general uh, adapting it for people who don't surf or don't love water just a really important play discipline a discipline of playfulness and embodiment that's that's central to your life that that's that's crucial and it's something that's missing from a lot of our lives and and I think our culture unfortunately has has promoted this bifurcation where You know, children can play for a minute. We seem to let them play in an unstructured way less and less. But children can play, but grown-ups have to settle down to the grim business of of earning money and counting pennies, making sure there are always more. And are there practical benefits that you haven't mentioned to having this regular play discipline that you can tell people about?
0: I'm not sure uh, if I can articulate it, but I will say in general for me, it's a recentering, it's a it's critical. I'm not sure it's the washing of the waves, or, or the act of surfing, or, or the disconnect. It's really hard to be thinking about how to cut the grass or how to earn income when you're out there. You just, it's it, it, it sort of absorbs you, literally and figuratively, and in a way that people talk about in contemporary terms as mindfulness. It, it takes away from. The, the logical, sequential that we're so focused on on a day-to-day basis to the gestalt, the, the uh, emotional, and it just, it washes away all those worries and, and, and sort of resets, uh, recalibrates. Uh, I think for me that's the, the takeaway. okay.
1: I'll just give you an example of something that I noticed when I started surfing, speaking to artificial barriers. I grew up in ACC sports country, mm-hmm. right? I grew up in, in Durham, sort of in the county situated between Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And uh-huh. this is some, some virulently fanatical basketball culture. And, uh, and so there, was, there were very competitive sports teams in my youth. And I've never been athletically gifted and came out of youth with with a little bit of a complex that I couldn't hang with the the real athletes, the the strong, big, agile, fast people. Uh, And when I learned how to surf, I found that the, one of the many beautiful things about this sport is that kind of diversity. I can go out and have, and have actually interviewed someone, I can go out with somebody who is a Division I college athlete, who is my physical superior in every athletically measurable way. And we're ha- both having a great time, we're both challenged, and it really helped me kind of dissolve that interior barrier that I had constructed over the course of my youth. And, and we've had conversations about uh, the professional we don't have a ton of racial diversity in the surf lineup where we are, but, but the professional diversity. You have plumbers and electricians and neuropsychologists. Everybody is out there, and nobody even knows what anybody does.
0: Yeah, or cares. Or
1: cares. And so it's you know there's this mental construct that I had erected in my life, and, and surfing really helped me dissolve that barrier. It helped me learn how to get up after I'd been knocked down
0: in new ways. Well, since you, uh, I, I talked about the personal side of things it's a it's a way to recalibrate and 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 appreciate what's important what's you know much less important but you've addressed the issue of the social side of things and let me let me address that as well and that is uh, in terms of the the aloha spirit as we often refer to we don't really seem to care too much about what you do for a living in, in the lineup And for that matter, people don't seem to be terribly concerned about whether you're good at surfing or not. What they're concerned about is more like, can you bring something to the equation? Can can you bring a good vibe to this group? Can you give a good story? Are you the one that's willing to share the wave? And for that matter, are you willing to give to the community in which you're part of? So nobody really is very concerned whether you're a quote a shredder but we are extremely concerned if you are uh, willing to take off on people or if you're rough on, on sunday when we caught those uh, was oh monday excuse me yeah when we caught those wonderful waves there was a guy that came out to the lineup who got right in the middle of us and one of the older guys a guy from hawaii said to him hey dude you gotta wait your turn Yes. And the guy says, I've been here since the beginning. Who in the hell are you? This is not the kind of attitude that we want. As as Tico, the the person I was referring to, he he calls this, this is our happy place. We we don't want you to come in here and give us what we call agro attitude. Uh, This is not where it's at. And, And that carries into the community as well. You know, we help each other when there's a need. And one of us uh, lost uh, their husband because she now has significant Parkinson's disease. So, when she needed a roof, we, we put our two cents in and got her a roof when she needs her yard cut. So, you know, the Aloha spirit starts in the water and continues into the land. It really does.
1: And, And I'm personally not a churchgoer and had never really felt like I was missing that from my life. But when I started to surf, and it began to really, I think, occupy a lot of the that church occupies for many people, I realized how important that community aspect, that sociologist Emile Durkheim referred to it as as collective effervescence, where people come together and and celebrate something. And it really does feel as though surfers do that, celebrate not just the beauty of the ocean and the excitement and dynamism of the waves, but just the incredible gift of being alive to enjoy them together.
0: Yeah, and that's what what happened. We didn't plan it. But the waves were fun, the water was clear, and the vibe was amazing. And, and when people took off, go Maya, you know, <laughs> you go girl, and, and you come back, you might talk some trash. And yeah, yeah, it's 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 sort of a ecologically valid church, if you will. Yes,
1: yes, that is exactly what it feels like. Is there anything else that you can think of that you would like to tell people about?
0: Well, you mentioned uh, play. I never envision surfing as play as more a, of a way of life, uh, but it does have a play attitude and where the, the consequences are really somewhat irrelevant that focuses on the process. And I wonder whether you know you could emulate that in other ways. I, I don't know maybe you know uh, the, uh, the other side of the coin is is there more to it than surfing? yeah, we focus on too you know how it, surfing is critical to, to me as a human being and, and to us as a community. Uh, And one wonders if everybody served where we find ourselves in in this terrible mess that we are in with our country and for that matter with our world.
1: There's a fellow named Stuart Brown and he
0: posits that
1: playfulness at work, the capacity to, to act and feel occasionally as though you're willing to risk failure. You feel like doing something just for its own sake, not because you're required to or paid to, that that kind of attitude is crucial to be successful on the level that you are successful. Do you think that your regular practice of play in the water has allowed you to potentially, at times when it's appropriate, be more playful at work?
0: Well, maybe not necessarily playful, but uh, I think of my my personal life is being relatively traditional conservative, but my professional life is being very unusual. The way I approached it and, and how I managed it seemed to be very unusual, and I don't think I could have done that unless I had that foundation. In the United States, and I'm very involved with healthcare policy, it's all about, you know, how you make the money, but it's very little about how you enjoy the experience. And I think we would find ourselves in a much better place if we could balance the two.
1: In what ways were your professional maneuvers
0: unconventional? Well, I went to a small school that had an ocean next to it. I was the first neuropsychologist, as far as I could tell, in in the state of North Carolina. When I didn't get promoted at the University of Georgia after my first year, uh, because of my lack of knowledge of English language, I kept on going. When I was not given tenure at USC Wilmington, um, I I reapplied. These are not wise things to do. But I understood who I was and where I was, and I thought it was a misunderstanding of people that judged me. So I was able to maybe be more risk-focused. Being a surfer myself,
1: I can absolutely see how a practice of surfing would set you up to get back up after somebody tried to knock you down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. when things go bad, you go surfing.
1: Yes, and and (laughs) then you practice getting knocked down and getting back up over and over again. Oh, that is so interesting. One of the aspects of surfing that is, is so powerful to me is the, I think the word that we have that best describes it is relationship. The way that's relationship between the surfer, the surfer's body, the surfer's brain and body, and the ocean has to be the focus. You can't be thinking as you say about mowing the lawn or uh-huh. earning more money. Uh-huh. And yeah, in that regular requirement that we focus on relationship and all of the benefits that we gather from being present for that relationship, including and especially you know our, our interhuman interactions it really does, for, for at least a subset of surfers, look to me like it, it enables us to go into the rest of our lives focusing on relationship and, and our bodies in relationship, our minds in relationship, and worry less about the next level of meta-existence, the abstraction, the grades, the economy, the dollars. Do you think that's
0: valid? Yeah, it, it, it puts it in focus, you stop worrying about you know accomplishing and you start being more concerned about being, being there, or just being mindful as the contemporary psychology folks are all talking about. And um, we, we often think that success is how much money I make, how many publications I've achieved, or the status in life, but we don't measure very well, or even consider measuring very well how much you enjoy living.
1: I can't imagine anything being more important than that.
0: Well, we've structured (laughs) an entire society and civilization where that doesn't seem to be very crucial to our equation. Yeah, we really have. And then, you know, maybe you'll have to look at some of the statistics of why young men are are dying or the opioid epidemic that we're experiencing. Obviously, people are trying to find happiness quickly and and in many cases unsuccessfully. And... uh, I think we we we've emphasized the importance of surfing as uh, as foundational there, there must be a as the, the uh, scientists and researchers involved with blue Mind suggest, there must be some foundation that's scientific or empirically explained i I, I don't know if, if if I need that Roger Sperry as I said it was my intellectual mentor the uh, first psychologist to win a Nobel Prize would say that that uh, our job with science is to anticipate what nature will eventually give us. Uh well maybe in terms of waves to wisdom, the wisdom in, in this process is we don't need science to validate the wisdom that that the experience of being surrounded by water and participating in the act of surfing on a regular basis provides you. That 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 wisdom is has been given to us in other ways. Uh, in my case, you know nineteen sixty four. I think I'm past needing science, you know? I do know that it's a requirement for me. Surfing is a requirement it's for a you. It's a requirement for me. You are
1: uh, a model of what this kind of integrated life lifestyle can do for somebody's success. I mean there there aren't a lot of sixty somethings in the hyper successful professional world who are as fit, active, healthy as you are. And you know the big smile you have on your face all the time is <laughs> testament enough.
0: Well, maybe people think that I'm smoking pot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Instead of surfing waves. <laughs> but uh,
0: that's not true. Uh, I will tell you it's a requirement and it's necessary just as much as other things like eating, sleeping. It's just part of the equation. So waves to wisdom, or, or maybe the alternative should be wisdom to waves.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you found Dr. Puente's story to be as inspiring and instructive as I did. Sharing these stories with you all is a tremendous privilege. But I also have the great fortune of being able to play a role in stories that I don't share. If you'd like to set up a conversation to talk about whether or not I might be the right coach for you, visit waves2wisdom.com.